Welcome to 35mm Perspective, a podcast where we watch movies and tell you what we thought about them. I am your host today, my name is Jacob Coots, and I am joined by my co-host, Grant Blabla. Grant, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well. I feel very dismissed by my introduction today, <laughs> but uh, I'm doing well. I'm excited, actually, because... Today we have a show in two parts, normally where we would have our trailers section, this week instead we're doing our quarterly awards. It's a quarterly look back at all of the films that we have reviewed thus far. We're going to look at our old ratings, maybe change some of our scores based upon further reflection, and additionally, each of us is going to give every film a paper plate award. If you've never gotten paper plate awards, I guess you've never gone to kindergarten, but basically... Or lived. Yeah, but basically what a paper plate award is, is... It's kind of a participation award. Everybody gets one, and it's usually <laughs> something goofy like best cat wrangler or whatever for the person that tends to bring everybody together when things are going insane. So each of us gives every single movie that we watched a paper plate award. And again, this is going to be something that we're going to do every quarter. So be on the lookout for that in another cup. Well, in another few months or so. After that, we're going to get into our feature presentation, which is the review of the film The Goldfinch, which we were both kind of interested to watch. We called it uh, Oscar bait, and I'm sure we'll get more into that in the review. But for now, Jacob, I'm really excited, so let's just move straight on into these quarterly reviews. And we'll be back with more podcast. All right, Grant, this is actually a moment I've been really excited for, and it's these quarterly awards you just announced. It's sort of like our one-fourth of the Oscars type thing going on here, where we talk about the old ratings, if we want to change our rating, which we did more than we didn't, uh, and, and then also just giving the movie some kind of fun little award to go along with that. And if you've been following along with us, our first movie we ever did was Spider-Man Far From Home. And as we talked about in one of our movie news segments, uh, this this movie is kind of impactful. Uh, post post uh, hummus? Posthumous? Posthumously, yeah. That, that goes into my award after the fact. But let's just go into the initial scores. I initially gave this a seven and a half and you gave this a six upon looking back at this movie. It, it was just fun. It was a pretty good movie, even though I'm mostly over Marvel now, despite being the Marvel buff. That being said, I changed my rating to an eight for this grant. Did you change yours at all? I did. I actually bumped mine. This is the biggest change out of any of my alterations. I pushed it from a six to a seven and a half. I mm. think because it was our first show, I was trying to figure out how to rate things, how to get my footing there. And it, it was a really good movie. I mean, like I talked about then, Marvel knows how to make good movies. They know how to they know how to do really good casting, which is actually my paper plate award. The award that I would like to give to Spider-Man is the Damn Do I Love Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Holland Award. 
I don't blame you for that award at all. That's actually their dynamic and also Zendaya is what caused me to bump it to an eight. For me, I gave this the farewell, but not the farewell movie award, uh, sort of referencing the Disney-Sony split and Sony's uh, Spider-Man's end in the MCU. So it's sort of his farewell film, at least for now. We'll see. So the second film that we reviewed, I'm sure uh, longtime listeners will remember, uh, which was Midsummer, because this was probably the film we were most critical of. As you can see by our scores, Jacob, you originally gave this a three and a half, and I gave it a four. Upon further reflection, I came to the conclusion that, I mean, the movie, while not great, there were still a lot of questionable choices throughout, but it really stuck with me. And as such, I feel like giving it a four isn't true. That's, again, it impacted me in in a very heavy way, almost more so than a lot of the movies that we've watched. I didn't love the content. There was some acting uh and some film cinematography issues but even so i'm bumping this from a four to a five just because it definitely did leave an impact on me and and i can't deny that fact for the same reason i'm not changing my score a three and a half i'm gonna leave it as such i think that the three and a half kind of signifies the type of impact it had on me it just wasn't the film i wanted it to be or needed it to be or thought it or it should have just been. As such, my award for this was Don't Watch This With Your Parents, Significant Other, Friends, or Yourself Award. Yeah, I can I, I can see that. I watched it with my significant other, and I was told by her, if you're going to keep watching movies every week for this show, if there's going to be more like this, I don't want to go with you. <laughs> so I can I can relate to that award. My award is Most Swedish Probably because I've never been to Sweden, and I think based on the movie, Ari Aster probably hasn't either. <laughs> so I feel like it works on a number of levels. Uh, that's more than fair. Coming up after Midsommar was probably the exact opposite movie, uh, and that was the Lion King remake for 2019. This movie had a lot put into it. It had a really big budget, a very selected cast. That being said... Our initial scores for this weren't too good. Uh, you, I gave it a five. You gave it a five and a half for reasons that we talked about in the review. And I thought hard about this movie. I wanted to give it a better score, but I just couldn't change my rating at all. I, I left it at a five. Yeah, I pulled mine down to a five. And I think for similar reasons that you left yours at five, I could maybe be persuaded to stick with a five and a half. But ultimately, to me, what this is, is it's kind of a pointless remake it was just a cash grab the original felt so much more organic so much better it's not a bad film like i said and like we talked about in this review i think that a lot of kids will enjoy it but i also can't see kids wearing this dvd out the way that i know dozens of people wore out the lion king vhs and so i just have to give it a middling five like i said in the original review just go watch the original. There's no reason to watch this movie other than to just talk about the fact that, wow, look how far special effects have come. And I mean, a lot of the performances in this didn't feel quite as truthful or honest. Even people who had been there, which is why I'm giving this the James Earl Jones Participation Award, because he was there, but he was only kind of there. <laughs> That's probably the perfect award. I also like mine, though. I gave this the Most Detail with the Least Substance Award. 
sort of referencing the amazing special effects, but just sort of it being this hollow shell type of movie. Following that, another blockbuster that a lot of people were very excited about, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a Quentin Tarantino film. We, I know, for a long time couldn't quite figure out what to rate this. Eventually, you settled on a six, I settled on a six and a half. On further reflection, I just felt like it wasn't Tarantino at his best. Maybe it's because it wasn't what I expected from him, and because of what I expected, I wanted something different, so it could maybe be more of a problem with me than with the film, but ultimately, I had to drop it just a little bit from a 6 down to your original rating, or excuse me, from a 6.5 down to your original rating of a 6. Our brains are so funny, Grant, because upon thinking back on the film and and all that it had in it, the cast and the, the storyline, it I didn't change much, but I bumped it from a 6 to a 6.5, <laughs> which was your original rating. So ultimately, the composite score from us, it was a net zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we just kind of grabbed each other's scores and said, hey, I like that one. Um, I think the best part about this movie was that the preview stopped showing before every single movie I watched in theaters. And... As a result, I gave this, I'd watch this movie again if it never meant seeing the trailer again award. Meaning that I'd rather watch a two and a half hour movie <laughs> than watch the trailer, which is two minutes. Yeah, that was, I think, in pretty much every movie we saw leading up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think we saw the trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood before it, or at least I did. Even in movies that were like PG, it would be an R-rated trailer. I'm just like, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, I've talked about this before. Hollywood, I feel, has a tendency to glorify itself, and those are the movies or the actors that tend to win awards, like I'm kind of looking at Argo here in particular, which is why I gave this the most likely to win Leonardo DiCaprio his first Oscar, except he finally has one award. <laughs> yeah, these these awards, I mean, probably... I mean, we just talked about how Hollywood glorifies itself. I like these awards a lot. Self-glorification, I'm here for it. <laughs> so moving from an R-rated movie to Dora the Explorer, our movie after that was Dora and the Lost City of Gold. And this is a movie I was vehemently against for the longest time. I saw the trailer, I almost vomited, and actually I ended up being pleasantly surprised by this movie. I initially gave it a 6.5 out of 10, which is six and a half points higher than I thought I would have rated it. And you also agreed you, you gave it a six and a half. And I can't change that score. I, I stick with that. I was considering bumping it up, but it didn't do enough to warrant that. But it certainly didn't deserve anything below that. So that felt like the best score. Yeah, I said the same thing. I actually didn't change this one either. I think this is one of the ones that we kind of nailed. It wasn't great, like we said in the review. It's not a cinematic masterpiece or anything like that. It's a fun family film. Everybody can go. Everybody will have a joke here or there that they really connect with. There was something in it for everyone, which was kind of cool because it's been a while since Nickelodeon films have done well, which is why I gave this the Best Nick Film that ended with a weird high school musical song and dance number award. It's the most specific jump, uh, specific sentence that's ever been said also the same sentiment though i i gave this the maybe nickelodeon can still make decent movies award because it was exactly that yeah i was gonna say i can't remember the last good nick movie 
that they've released, at least not theatrically, because there aren't too many, but that's that could be an industry talk or a trailer segment for a whole other day. <laughs> Moving beyond that, we moved kind of whiplashed back in the other direction after Dora into Ready or Not, which was just kind of this indie-ish gore fest that we both generally enjoyed because we both initially rated it seven and a half. And again, upon further further reflection, I've got to bump that up to an eight. I talked about how much fun I had at the movie. I didn't really expect much going in. All of the acting, generally speaking, was caricature-y, but it knew that, like very Cabin in the Woods style, like I kept bringing up in the original review. Everybody is meant to sort of be a joke about horror movie characters, and it it was a very good movie, especially for the amount of marketing and budget that it had. Fully agree. You know, we were really in sync for these last two movies. I bumped my rating up to an eight as well for the sole reason that it was just plain fun. It was a very solid movie. We'll talk about how solid it was at the end of these Paper Plate Awards. But in the meantime, my Paper Plate Award for this was the Just Plain Fun Award. Yeah, I can get behind that. I, like I said, had a blast watching this movie. I'm not a horror movie fan, like I've mentioned several times. And I had a really good time watching this movie. And like I said, I was impressed with how much it was able to do on a small budget, which is why I gave it the smaller budget, but still better than Midsummer Award. That's a very specific award that only comes <laughs> around once ever. So... <laughs> Once every midsummer, which is 80-something years. Yeah, whatever they said. (laughs) If you haven't caught Whiplash already, it seems we do an R movie (laughs) and then a PG movie every other week. The movie after that was The Farewell. A very uh, emotional and raw look at Asian culture and cancer and death. and uh, It was a very pleasant movie. Uh, it was also from the same studio that did Midsommar, but it it had the exact opposite effect on you. Our initial ratings were pretty high, one of our highest scored movies. I initially gave it a 7, and it jumped to an 8 during the review, which was the first time that happened, and Grant gave it an 8.5, the highest score that either of us have given. After thinking, I jumped from a 7, went to an 8, this movie was really hard for me to score, and it was really hard for me to reevaluate. I decided why not take the average of my two ratings and give it a seven and a half. Ultimately, I didn't change because for similar reasons, I it was hard enough to score the first time. I literally right before we sat down to record that podcast up until that point, I had it rated as an eight. And then we were talking about it a little bit off cast, like collating our notes, getting ready. And I realized that I didn't really have many complaints with it. And so I felt like I I just had to bump it to an eight and a half. And I could not go back and reevaluate and change anything at this point. So I'm just going to leave this one alone. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it is an eight and a half. And it gets my happy sad award because it hits a lot of different feelings and it hits all of them pretty well. Here's how difficult this movie has been for me. I almost changed my rating again. Honestly, I've never had a movie that's been so hard for me to digest and and wrestle with because it it did all these uh, very complex things in a very um, admirable way. And my award for that was the I didn't know how to score it or what award to give it award. 
which I think is the most fitting one I have. Yeah, it's a very introspective reward or <laughs> award, I feel like. So again, if you still don't have Whiplash, let's try one more time. <laughs> so we jump from the farewell to It Chapter 2, which we we gave it a decent score. Yours was a 6, mine was a 7. I was a little bit more impressed with it. I think coming in, not having seen the first film, you were a little bit let down having seen the first film, so you had different expectations for what it was going to be. Ultimately, I mean, this was only a week ago that we reviewed this, but even so, I don't think I'm changing anything. There were definitely some fairly glaring issues with it, but I still feel like it was a good on-ramp for people that hadn't seen the movie. I feel like it was cinematography, the cinematography was really well done. Most of the cast was really good, so I gotta stick with a 7 on this one. That's certainly fair. I did some thinking in between last week when I was just so very young and naive and now (laughs) and I actually bumped it up a half a point I gave this a six and a half just because it really was a it wasn't a bad movie by any stretch uh and and it had some good scares some good lines so it I gave it a little bit higher of a score that being said my initial critiques of the movie still stand I it just the (laughs) It created my award, which was the the marketing team was better than the director award. Yeah, I mean, given that the marketing team used one of the best scenes as the trailer and really pulled everyone in, I can agree with that. Uh, I kind of already hit on my award, which was the best on-ramp for viewers who never saw the first movie award, because that's actually really hard to do generally, especially when the sequel directly is impacted by the movie previously. I mean, you can watch Jurassic Park 2 and kind of get the gist of it without really having needed to see Jurassic Park 1. Versus It Chapter 2, you kind of really need to know what happened in It Chapter 1. And they did a really good job of integrating new viewers quickly. So I was very impressed with that. Yeah, it did handle the need for continuity, but still accounting for new people very well. Now... Taking all these movies together, we sort of had this idea that we should give sort of a movie of the summer as we move out of summer and into fall and uh, all these certain certain things. Obviously, there's a best movie, a movie that we most enjoyed, and it doesn't even need to be tied to the score. And for me, the movie of the summer was Ready or Not. It was a really good horror movie. It held a special place in my heart uh, just because it sort of fell into the uh, I don't want to say satire role, but sort of satire on horror movies, uh, while still being somewhat scary, somewhat uh, thrilling. It was tied for my highest score, uh, and for me it was the movie I'd be most likely to watch again. I couldn't even watch F- Far From Home when it came out with a re-release with a director's cut, uh, even though that also got an 8. Grant, what was your movie of the summer? This I mean, it maybe should have been harder than it was. In my mind, The Farewell is the best movie that we watched this summer. But my movie of the summer, I have to agree with you, ready or not, I've I've ranted and raved about it. And I know that The Farewell got a better score, but I had much more fun with Ready or Not. It's a movie that I would watch again. The Farewell, I feel like you really only need to see once or twice, and it's very poignant. It's going to send a lot of messages. But Ready or Not... You can watch over and over. Like I said, I'm not a horror movie guy, and I'm actually very much considering picking this up on either 
Blu-ray or digital or something to have because it was a really fun movie that I think can be enjoyed by a large group of people. It's a great drinking movie. It's a great movie to just hang out with folks. And so for that reason, especially when you look at the summer months and that's kind of the idea is like, let's get out there. Let's have some fun. It's the summer. Let's get away from school, get away from work, responsibilities. I feel like Ready or Not really embodied that to me. More than fair. It definitely fit that role. Uh, and it was a movie that was well acted on such a small budget, which is the most admirable part of that. But we finished this quarterly awards segment. We've given some paper plate awards. Hopefully you've had some laughs along the way. But now it's time for our feature presentation, a movie that had very few laughs in it, The Goldfinch. We'll be right back. All right, and here we are, Jacob. We are in the feature presentation, which again is The Goldfinch, directed by John Crowley, who also directed the second season of True Detective, which I've heard is the worst season of True Detective, which <laughs> may make some things make a little bit more sense. In our leads, we have Oakes, Fagley, and Ansel Elgort playing young and old Theo Decker, respectively. Amy Lawrence and Ashley Cummings playing young and old Pippa, respectively. Finn Wolfhard and Anurin Barnard playing young and old Boris, respectively. Luke Wilson playing Larry Decker, who is Theo's father. Sarah Paulson playing Zandra, who is Larry's girlfriend or wife. It's not super clear. Nicole Kidman playing Miss Barber, the woman who adopts, looks after Theo. I, Something. I don't know. <laughs> Something, yeah. And then Jeffrey Wright playing Hobie. The budget for this movie was $45 million, which... Seems initially a little bit high for, you know, it's a drama, it's not an action movie that generally requires much special effects or anything, but again, looking at this cast list, it sort of makes sense when you've got Ansel Elgort, Finn Wolfhard, Sarah Paulson, Nicole, like everybody on here effectively, when they're all fairly large name stars, but... I mean, there, there's more to the finance side that we'll get into once we get to the critics' reviews. But first, Jacob, let's talk spoiler-free about what you thought about this movie. I guess this is sort of preliminary, but I have no idea why the critics hated this film as much as they did. I mean, it had some problems, but so does every movie, and it certainly didn't deserve all the hate it got. No, I'd agree. I was very surprised to see how panned it was by critics initially. I watched it, and yeah, like you said, there were definitely problems, but nothing so bad that it merited some of the just awful scores and reviews that it got. And it's interesting, we're not the only ones that think this. Despite the critical reviews, Ansel Elgort actually recently acknowledged them and is standing behind the film, and he noted that many of the negative reviews are well-written and do point out some faults with the film, but has also stated over and over that there's a lot of good in the film and that it really moved his mother and she's not moved by all of his movies, and so he's really standing behind it, which I, I have some respect for, you know, an artist standing behind their work. But again, I don't think it merits all the harsh criticism that it's been getting. Was it perfect? No. But is it, you know, a, a 2 out of 10 or whatever? No, I also don't think that's the case. I especially respect him standing behind that. I think he's a pretty good actor. I'll talk more in the spoiler section. But I wonder if the critics just sort of watched the first 10 minutes of the film and just pieced out after that, because it was a little bit hard to follow at first. Without getting into too much, it just, it was hard to keep track of. It was a very slow start, 
And I think maybe that, you know, first impressions are important. Maybe that rubbed some critics the wrong way. Yeah, I'd agree. The storytelling was a bit confused, not only at the beginning, but in a few places throughout. It was most prevalent at the beginning. But again, we've talked about this. This is, I suppose, a very small spoiler, but there is occasionally some interspersed narration, which seemed very out of place. You can go listen to our thoughts about that in the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood trailer, but we've talked about it before. We feel like it's kind of a sin in movies when you only have narration when convenient, and especially, or to me at least, if you're not bookending, because if you bookend, it kind of makes sense again, sort of see The Princess Bride and other films of that nature, but when it's just oddly interspersed, especially from a main character, it doesn't really always make sense, and there's a little bit of that, and I didn't love it here didn't love it so if you watch the movie at first uh just stick with it because after that it it does pick up for the most part a lot of the actors deliver some pretty good performances i love jeffrey wright as an actor he's stars in one of my favorite films which is the source code but everyone seems to care about this movie ansel elgort of course also the children actors do a very good job so as a whole, just keep with the movie. Don't tune out after the first couple of minutes. That being said, watching this movie, there was some problems, as we alluded to. There was a lot of coincidences. So if you're very logical like I am, that can that can get with it. The trailer did a very good job with soundtrack and ambiance, and that wasn't quite how the movie handled things. So I wish more was done with the soundtrack. Maybe it wasn't as emotionally impactful as suspected. And it sounds like I'm listing a lot of problems, but the film works better than the sum of its parts. And that's the take-home message here from the spoiler-free segment, is that this was a pretty decent film after, after it got its footing from the beginning. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also agree generally with what you said about all of the actors doing an incredibly good job. I think that uh, Ansel Elgort is generally a pretty good actor, and I feel like he did a fairly good job here as well, but I found myself a little bit miffed, because I feel like he's getting advertised as one of the primary stars, but Oakes Feigley, or Feigley, I'm not quite sure how to say his last name, the child actor that played young Theo, I felt he did just as well, if not better, than Elgort playing Theo, and I feel like he deserves a little bit more recognition for that. On top of that, I mean, it seems like everything is coming up Finn Wolfhard this summer slash year between this, It too, Stranger Things, just that that guy's having a hell of a year and good on him for it. I think that generally everything he's been in, he's done a fairly good job at. Um, and at his age, he's probably made more money than I ever will. So. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Like you said, Jeffrey Wright puts on an incredibly, incredibly good performance. The only one that I'm honestly having a little bit of an issue with is actually Nicole Kidman. And this is similar to the it Two issue that I had where I can't determine. I, I don't think it was her this time. I'm actually fairly certain it wasn't her. The character that she was given is a bit odd in the film without getting too deep into it. And so it's not her best performance. I think because in a lot of it, especially at the beginning, she's very reserved and a bit of a confusing character that we don't get a ton of, payoff for which is kind of a common theme because this film tried to cover a lot of things all sort of very rapidly and it's all interwoven or they try to interweave it but the way that that ends up working is some things just cov cover other things up 
and I did a middling job talking about most of these topics, but the primary ones of grief and regret, I think, were generally handled well by allowing some more of the raw imagery and emotion of the actors to come through. There is another, it's not an issue, but we've certainly entered into a cycle this summer of long movies that feel long. Mm -hmm. See It Chapter 2, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even Avengers Endgame. This movie, I kept, not not because I was bored or anything, but I kept looking at my phone to check the time because I felt like we weren't progressing enough in the film for how long I felt like it had been, which was a bit of a problem that we'll get into in the spoiler section. Um, And again, that sort of ties into the storytelling being a little bit confused. But part of the problem, I think, comes from some weird issues relating to production and marketing. So again, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, this was a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. And Donna Tartt, who was the author, sold the rights to Warner Brothers, uh, among a couple of other film studios that work together on this. And then to my understanding was pretty much completely absent for the screenwriting and production progress to the point where even when they tried to contact her about some issues and keeping consistency between the novel and the film, she was impossible to contact. Like she kind of handed them film rights and said, that's it, I'm done and walked away. And in terms of marketing issues, well, here's the thing. So on the original Warner Brother, original Warner Brothers slate, This movie still would not have come out. It was originally slated to come out on October 11th, but because it was doing poorly with test audiences, they decided to just move it up and I think kind of brush it under the rug, which maybe hurt them because there was a little bit of confusion about the release date and the marketing was a little confusing to begin with. But again, it performed so poorly with test audiences that they actually dramatically trimmed their marketing plan for the film, which certainly didn't help them. And I know you had an interesting fact about its its like critical opening in terms of box office take, didn't you? I did. And uh, what better time to share it than now? This was actually the sixth worst opening of all time, probably adjusted for inflation, of a movie that opened in wide release. So more than 2,500 theaters. And that is a non-trivial opening. For especially a non-Disney studio, this being Warner Brothers, of course they have some money, so it's not like this is going to cripple them. But a $45 million budget, it opened at $2.8-ish million for its opening slate from Thursday to Sunday. So that is a very small yield for what they were expecting. They expected it to be small anyway because of the test audiences. It was a little bit risky because they opened this movie in uh, at, at a film festival, and you know that always carries with it some some uh, risk. And there is where it didn't do so hot with critics, uh, and as a result, they got these early reviews saying the movie wasn't good, and maybe that caused some people who maybe were going to see it with this already small marketing pull uh, to not see it. All of these had a significant effect on who saw this movie, and it's a little bit of a shame because, as we talk about in the spoiler review, it touches on a lot. And as you, if you see the trailer, you you already know that it touches on a lot. Yeah, and I think I don't have these numbers handy right in front of me. I think that that number that you gave the two million opening take 
I think that that was actually worldwide too. The domestic take was less than a million, which again, a film, either way, a film with a $45 million budget, you don't want to see it taking that little. It's opening weekend because it tends to only go down from there. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, there were some problems with it. Like we talked about, there is certainly a disconnect from a number of subsets of people primarily based on wealth and class. We'll get more into that in the spoiler section, but suffice to say that not everybody can relate to the characters while they can relate to the feeling of loss of a loved one and confusion about one's life and, you know, the various tragedies that can happen in it. It's hard to connect with characters whom you feel you share nothing in common with. And I feel that most of the characters in this film are fairly hard to relate to in that way. And additionally, there's some irregularities in how these characters spoke and acted, especially in the scenes of the younger kids. There were moments when they were laughing and joking like, you know, 12-year-olds like they were. Other times they were conversing like adults and talking about favorite composers and just very adult themes and and I understand that when you've gone through a tragedy it causes you to grow up very quickly but it felt very whiplashy back and forth between whether or not they were kids and I don't know it was a little bit out there in some of the character direction and just the last thing I feel like saying in this spoiler free segment is that my initial well not my initial but in the movie I thought hello Amazon because they had a studio credit at the beginning of the film which is somewhat rare because they're not really in the theatrical market they have a very good streaming service and obviously amazon prime but what really rang true for me was an actor in one of their most popular shows on their streaming service luke kleintank he's in the man in the high castle is in this film he plays one of the characters and to me it was just funny to see that a lot of studios and streaming services have repeat actors in a sense that really partner with that studio and only act in their things. I have to wonder if that's beneficial or not, but for me, I I especially love that series. So it's just funny to see Amazon really making a impact here with one of their actors and probably goodbye in the theatrical market based on how this movie was received Maybe this was their attempt to get a foot in there, seeing Disney's success, but I'm thinking maybe they're just going to take a step back and, and focus on what they're already good at. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree. I know that they've had some other credits for a few other films here and there. They tended to be more art housey. I think of Amazon Studios uh, a little bit more like A24 in that they're a little bit adverse to risk-taking in terms of films, and I think you're right. This was them... Well, I don't know. This might have been them feeling like they weren't taking a risk. Again, a book that received a Pulitzer Prize, even though it was kind of, it had mixed reception initially. It was kind of polarizing. They figured, you know, what better place than to put some of our money in the in the film market than this. But yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you that I think they might take a step back, reevaluate their streaming service and think long and hard about maybe just focusing on that. Again, a point I just want to make that I know that you have uh, already echoed Don't go into this with the mindset of it being a bad movie because of a lot of critical reviews, I beg of you. Also, don't go in expecting it to be a masterpiece or for it to be perfect. It is most certainly not. 
However, I think it is a lot better than it has been given credit for, for a number of reasons, for people's own self-importance. Again, it did seem like Oscar bait, so maybe people were reviewing it a little bit more harshly. But as a film about loss and the exploration of a difficult and confusing life that is, you know, very clearly overblown and fictionalized, I think it did a good job of exploring how full of twists and turns everyone's life can be. So with that, let's just jump into the critical reception. We've hinted at it not being favorable. You said the book was very polarizing at first, and then you could almost say it became kind of Pulitzerizing. Boo. <laughs> I'm really proud of that. Anyway, <laughs> the critic reception was just not good at all. On Rotten Tomatoes, it got a score of a 26%, and from the audiences, it got a 73%. So the audiences thought this movie was a lot more favorable than the critics did, and that trend also holds when you look at more of an average type score, looking at Metacritic, where it got a 40 from critics and an 8.0 from the audience. So moderately close to the Rotten Tomatoes score, we've talked about how the differences and how those are computed. Really, the audiences tended to like this film a lot more than the critics did. For some reason, these splits happen, not often, but they do. On cinema score, this got a B. More or less, what this is saying is that audiences seem to have a decent time, but the box office opening was still very low. So I wonder if... The word of mouth wasn't strong enough to pull this out of the grave the critics had dug in some way. And also, it just wasn't a very well-marketed film. We we mentioned Once Upon a Time in Hollywood aired pretty much before every movie we watched. This aired maybe before one movie I saw. it. I really didn't know about this until I looked at what movies were coming out for the podcast. So it, it was kind of a well-kept secret in some way. Yeah, I saw it once or twice, but it certainly didn't have the marketing of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And again, I think Warner Brothers pulled a lot of that marketing, which is maybe a disservice. I mean, trying to save a little bit of budget, save some face, I'm not totally sure. But do you have any closing thoughts before we get into the spoiler section? Just going to say, I think I probably lean more toward the audience on this one with my score. There's a lot that happens in this movie, so it's definitely a movie that I had to digest over a couple of days. After that period, I gave this movie a 7 out of 10, and I'm not sure if I'm super super comfortable with that score. It's a pretty loose 7, but I think that's pretty fair based on everything that it consisted of. What did you think, Grant? I gave it a 6.5. We talked a little bit off-cast about comparing it to other movies again it's hard using a strict numerical system sometimes it seems like we're rating movies against one another like if we go back really quick to our our adjusted scores i gave door on the lost city of gold a 6.5 and i gave once upon a time in hollywood a 6 which doesn't mean that door on the lost city of gold is a better movie than once upon a time in hollywood it just means that i liked it a little bit more and based on the expectation for it i thought it did a better job of doing what it was trying to do and bear that in mind when I give this score as well. I gave this one, again, a 6.5, which is a little bit better than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, if I was going to compare it to any film that we watched thus far and reviewed for the podcast, I think 
that has to be the one that I would give it to. Agreed. I mean, I, I guess you could maybe kind of compare it to The Farewell, but that was much more focused and this felt much more like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I do think I enjoyed this more than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Not much, which is why I had to give it a 6.5 compared to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's 6. One more quick note before we head into the spoiler section. No post credit scene. Probably unsurprising for this film, <laughs> if you know anything about it. But again, just to let everybody know, no post credit scene. But with that in mind, Let's move into our spoiler section. So if you haven't seen the film and you're planning on it, pause this podcast. We live in your phone, not in your home. <laughs> so you can go watch it, come back to us, and then you can see if your thoughts agree with ours. Or if you don't care about spoilers, then let's go ahead and carry on. All right. So, Jacob, you talked about the beginning being kind of a problem. Let's just go. I, I also had some issues, but I'll let you start and then we can round back to me. Yeah, so I I initially was somewhat excited for this film. I was very confused by the trailer, but they had a great soundtrack and it seemed like it was going to hit a lot of complex things. So I was pretty excited. We said it was Oscar bait and I certainly think it was that, but I saw the critical reception shortly before watching the film, and I saw that the scores were just so bad, so I didn't know how to perceive this film going in. Was it going to be what it set out to be? And when I first started the movie, I thought it was, the critics were right. It was it started with narration, classic movie sin. So it started with Ansel Elgort narrating, and then it jumped to something in the past, and it wasn't clear to me when it was jumping back and forth what was in Meteor Ray and what was the past, present, future. I, I don't know. <laughs> it was just so hard to think about, and thankfully after that it fixed a lot of problems and had a lot of good acting, uh, but I, I think that maybe the beginning had an effect on the score. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, so it was told non-linearly, mostly. I mean, it was linear in each of the two storylines that were happening, but one was in the past, one was in the ostensibly present, and it jumped back and forth between them. And it was very confusing at the beginning. When it wasn't in the beginning, again, it was pretty compelling, the non-linearity, um, which was when it worked, but the beginning, it just didn't work. It was confused, and that takes its toll on the audience. And, you know, unsurprisingly, the beginning of a film is kind of one of its most important parts. So like you said, I think that impacted a lot of critical reviews and initially my first thoughts on it, too. I mean, there are certain flashbacks that certainly do work, like the flashback following the interaction with the antique buyer at the restaurant makes a lot of sense. But the downside of that is that it takes a long time to pay off because in that flashback, it, it explains why Theo faked these pieces. It's because he spent so much of his life trying to pay Hobie back for taking him in after, you know, everything happened with leaving New York and then his father and his father basically stealing his identity and taking all this money and then his father killing himself and having to get on a bus from Las Vegas back to New York by himself, and Hobie took him in with basically no questions asked. That's the story of why Theo faked the pieces effectively, right? Because he loves and appreciates Hobie and everything he did for him, and he's just trying to pay him back the whole time. But 
The problem is, is that the road that the film takes us on to get to that point is really long and winding. And so it's, you know, unsurprising that the impact of why Theo faked these pieces is lessened. And at the end of that flashback, we're not necessarily left feeling like, oh yeah, I can see why Theo loves Hobie and like that this is this all makes sense with context to when this flashback started so much as we're just left thinking, wow, Theo had a really rough, had a really rough life and Hobie's a really nice guy, which again, it just deadened that impact, which is where we really needed it. And that's probably this movie's biggest weakness is its use of runtime because it had, and I think there was a lot of compelling stories and a lot of different parts. So talking about, the relationship between Boris and Theo was it was a great story and I think the dynamic that Finn Wolfhard had with Oaks Fegley was phenomenal I, I think child actors between this and it too are becoming just so incredibly good but it spent so much time focusing on that which could have been a movie of its own that when you got to the adulthood aspects which also were very compelling that it, it it tried to almost be two movies at once. And each one would have worked individually. But as a whole, it just felt hard to get super attached to each part. For instance, when he faked the piece for that buyer. The buyer had a very weird role in this film. Very inconsistent part, which I touch on later. But... It wasn't even abundantly clear to me until toward the end that he did indeed fake this piece. And at first it seemed like a mistake, but and or maybe Hobie was involved, but that wasn't the case. And, and so just this lack of explanation and this jumping back and forth between timelines, I think the flashbacks worked so well at points, but it just made this film have a slight lack of direction. And that's probably also where it got hit in addition to the opening being a little bit weak. Yeah, I'd agree. There's this common thread of complex stories and issues being boiled down either because of too much or too little information. For example, that scene where we find out that Kitsy, Theo's fiance, is cheating on her with the kid who caused Theo to get in trouble in the first place, which is why he ended up in the art gallery with his mom because they're on the way to see the principal, which he talks about several times. That's that guy that Kitsy is cheating on him with, but it's not as impactful as it could be because first off, you don't even recognize that it's that guy Mm -hmm. until it gets mentioned much later, only very, very briefly. And additionally, the film hasn't put a whole lot into the relationship between Kitsy and Theo, which I imagine there was more in the novel. There's that initial scene where they get reintroduced and there's this kind of pseudo flirty moment and then there's that scene where Kitsy refuses to wear Theo's mother's earrings at their wedding. So we were already left not liking Kitsy very much. And so the entirety of that storyline just feels more like it's meant to show that she wasn't a very good person. And it additionally just piles more misfortune onto Theo. I mean, there could have been a much more interesting exploration regarding how Theo's love for Pippa kind of impacted their relationship. And It is touched on briefly when Kitsy says something about, I know what it's like to be in love with the wrong person, just like you do. But they didn't explore that at all, really. It was a single line and two scenes that just felt like they added more misfortune to Theo's life. I mean, this is really just kind of a 
tragedy in the Shakespearean sense, in that everything just keeps piling on and on to Theo, but even at some point, I think Shakespeare would have been like, hey, let's give this guy a break, you know? <laughs> that was sort of one of my qualms with it, too. I, As always, I talk about a lot of logical inconsistencies or improbabilities. I'm sort of the play-by-play and Grant's the color commentator because of his experience with screenwriting and all that. But to have Theo go through all of this stuff, and it seemed like one terrible event after another, after another, after another, it got, I don't want to say old, but almost old after a while. Where I was like, damn, I get it. He's had a hard life. And I think part of the problem is with book adaptations into movies, obviously a movie like Harry Potter or The Hunger Games, there's no getting out of that. Like, obviously this was a book first and a lot of people have read the book. But for a book like The Goldfinch, which won a Pulitzer Prize and still was well sold, not many people read the book, but you could still tell it was adapted from a book. And so these things that you could sense were left out. I never read the book, although I would like to read it. I I still felt something was missing. And I think the best book adaptations into movies are the ones where you don't even know it was a book originally. Where you're like, wow, this was a book? Like, this movie was so good. The Martian was one where many people didn't know that was a book, but it was a really good movie. And And I think maybe the book just dealt with so many things that the movie had no chance to avoid that reality. But for instance, like the Theo and Pippa story, I really like that part. I think Ansel Elgort has really good romantic dynamics in movies, The Fault in Their Stars being one. Also a movie I didn't think I'd like, but ended up liking. They played on that really well, and it got toward the end, and they had this conversation about their love well, his love for her, and it was a really intimate and, and touching conversation. But after that, there was just no exploration of that. And and you could tell that something was missing there, because Pippa wasn't in there again after that. But she was more of a character than just part of a love story. I mean, as kids, the actors did really well, and as adults, the actors did really well. And then they had a great conversation, and that was the end of it. So that was part of my problem yeah i was gonna say that exact thing like the pip storyline was more compelling than the kitsy one and i think that was by design again theo is i think inherently more attracted to pippa than kitsy and he's sort of settling and i i actually really appreciated what pippa had to say to theo regarding why she wouldn't return to new york and why they couldn't be together about how because they had gone through this tragedy together, if one of them fell, they would drag the other one down with them. That that was really poignant and powerful, and I think a message that can be spread to a lot of relationships, like allow everybody to have their own grief, don't get drawn down in somebody else's grief, and don't let yourselves pull each other down into something like that. Mm-hmm. But like you said, following that, to my recollection, she is never mentioned or shown again in the rest of the film and if so if she is it's very brief and so it just sort of sours the whole thing and it's really disappointing because it was one of the most interesting connections in the film because it's literally the only other living connection to that tragedy that theo has in the world there was nobody else that could relate to him on that level but at the end it just felt like it had been turned into a simple love story 
And then especially when his feelings aren't requited by Pippa and so she's just gone. Like you said, it feels like there was something that was in the book that was just left out there. And I imagine that the book had a lot of ups and downs. While the film mostly only showed downs, the only ups in the movie were when Theo is getting high, which is maybe meant to be a comment on the drug culture in America. But the problem there is that they, again, don't really touch on that heavily because it's sort of just dismissed as a character flaw of Theo's, and it's actually actively encouraged by a couple characters, like Boris when they're kids, and then also to some degree Kitsy, who just says, I don't care how many drugs you do, whatever, let's just get married to make my mother happy. And so it it never really shows it affecting Theo's life in a particularly negative way, other than when he tries to kill himself with drugs, but that's, you know, not the drugs themselves so much as him. And that also goes, I mean, maybe to the in media ray part, but I wasn't sure the beginning was in media ray until it came back to that. And I actually appreciated the walk back to that. I just wish I knew it was clearly going to be the middle of the film or toward the end where you came back to him narrating and that scene where there's blood and in all of that, everything being his fault, et cetera, et cetera. As far as characters go, you know, the him and Kitsy story. You know, she was just kind of a tropey character, and that was sort of a running theme in this film, where you had Finn Wolfhard acting as a Russian. He wasn't a good Russian, he was very much a Hollywood Russian, although he gave a good performance outside of his accent. And you had Platt's first introduction, which was just so out of place and so nonsensical i'm surprised they included it where he just walks into this dinner or breakfast or whatever meal it was and he says who do i gotta blow to get some food here and they're like go to your room you're kicked out of school is what we find out no mention of that until he's an adult and he's actually a pretty good character he's the guy who plays joe blake from the man in the high castle you have xandra who's very much the ditzy Hooters blonde. She ends up getting better, but it just seems like when we're first introduced to characters, they they fit almost juxtaposed roles from the tone of the film. And it it took me out of the film a little bit where I was like, that's not a real person, and this film knows that. Platt, I'm sure played a much larger role in the novel but that initial introduction it that felt really hammered in there just because they needed him to be introduced because the connection that the bigger connection that theo had to his family andy ends up dying so he has to run into somebody else from the family to get him back onto that train and they were like oh yeah he runs into platt we have to meet platt at some point so they throw him in for less than 30 seconds only for Theo to run into him on the street when he's much older and them to recognize each other which like you said coincidences kind of out there especially when you consider the number of people in New York how likely is it that you're going to run into the guy whose family sort of adopted you when you were a kid but that was well that and I also thought based on how he was introduced I thought Theo was going to get his ass kicked in that scene like he was going to beat him up or give him a noogie or something like it yeah for him to be the mellow and like kind of good character he was after that just made no sense based on how he was as a kid. Yeah, I agree. I had no idea what was going on there. When Theo said, 
oh, hey, Platt, it's good to see you. I was like, who's Platt? And similarly, when the dad kind of introduces Platt in the movie, he goes, Theo, uh, you remember Platt. I literally audibly in the theater said, no, I don't. Because he had never been introduced before. I was like, who is this guy? (laughs) Yeah, it it was a shame to see (laughs) Platt's handling. But very much one of those uh, tropey type characters, uh, being the teenager, and then as an adult, maybe drunk, troubled kid. Being with all these drunk handlings, we've talked about the rough life Theo had. It this movie handled a lot of complicated things, but maybe too many. Honestly, I have a list here of all the things it touched on in some domain. <laughs> It's a really long list, and it gets kind of crazy toward the end. It touched on child abuse, survivor's guilt, lost love, unrequainted love, suicide, murder, extortion, being cheated on, the importance of history, drug abuse, running away from your family, terrorism, and international art theft. That's a lot to cover even in two and a half hours. That is so much. And I got a text from Grant. We watched the movie at really almost the same time saying so a lot happened that was the whole text i like <laughs> i didn't know what more to say because i that about sums it up i was like okay a lot ha- i i leaned over to ashley my girlfriend like 20 minutes before it was even over there was still the whole art you know retrieval thing going on and i'm like what's happened in this movie but i don't know how much of it was important really is the one of the real problems that I'm having with it. Again, a lot of it just felt like, oh, look, Theo had a rough life, which, you know, is obviously true. And like you said, some of those things that they talk about, they do explore well. Others, they don't explore at all, which is one of the main problems that I find with it. Exactly. Maybe you could touch on half of those things and maybe leave out extortion and being cheated on and unrequainted love. And maybe you have more time to explore the other 12 things in the movie. But as a result, there was just a little bit less emotional fulfillment than I expected. The start of the list is very... You can maybe infer from the trailer. And the other things sort of come as a surprise. And as a result, even though the runtime is very, very long, there's just less time to explore how all these things can affect someone's life. And so instead of being this very cathartic, explorative experience, it's sort of like, let's just shit on Theo for two and a half hours and then fix his life in 20 minutes. Yeah, I think part of the problem was that I think that it was meant, well, so we see the actual terrorist attack happen in pieces, right? Like there's different moments in flashbacks in various ways both when Theo's a child and an adult where we get different pieces of that day until we finally see it more or less play out in its entirety kind of at the end but much like it too the same problem that we talked about last week I feel like the trailer really did a disservice to the movie here because it would be much more interesting if we had only gotten those pieces bit by bit and we're still wondering oh what exactly happened and we're getting 30 more seconds every 20 minutes or so before we get the full picture but we kind of saw the whole thing in the trailer you see that scene kind of start to finish or mostly start to finish with a little bit of jarring pieces in between in the trailer 
So it's like they were trying to feed us piece by piece, but we could see the whole meal that they were feeding us from. And it's like, no, I want, just give me that. I've already seen it. I, I already know that it's there. It's not like you can pretend this is only what I've got. I, I don't know. That that was that was a problem for me. And additionally, a, a weird minor problem was that everybody in this film, with the exception of Hobie, Hobie excuse me, was white, affluent, and spoke like it down to the fact that they had names like Platt and Kitsy. <laughs> Let's consider that for a second. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like, I'm not saying that there can't be films with, you know, white, affluent people in them. But again, like I mentioned in the non-spoiler section, it's going to distance a very large sect of people from this movie. And I get that, again, it's based on a novel, and that's how the novel was, so there's only so much you can do about that. But you know, a lot of people can relate to the loss of a loved one, even more specifically, the loss of a loved one due to a terrorist attack or senseless violence, but not everybody can relate to that while additionally relate to going to art galleries as a kid all the time, or learning to play classical instruments, or talking about composers, or going to live in Texas with an aunt who owns a ranch and horses. Like, it's a very specific and affluent way of thinking that can really distance people from the characters like I mentioned in the spoiler free section which just kind of makes you lose a little bit of empathy for them because you tend to be empathetic towards the people that you can relate to right and it's very hard to relate to some of these characters absolutely true I mean I grew up in a relatively poor family so I didn't relate to a lot of this especially you know a lot of it hinges on antique culture which maybe it's part of my upbringing but I I find hard to care about but you know i rolled my eyes a couple of times during the movie and i said oh white people you know it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's at some points it's like a very classist issue a very classist struggle and and maybe that's why they just had theo go through all these rough things because they're like oh he's he grew up in a very affluent family and was adopted by an even more affluent family so now he needs to go through some hardships for you to relate to him in some way but I, I mean, I was looking at two chairs, the antique chair and the replicate chair. And I was like, I, which one's cheaper? Like, I don't care which one has character. It's wood. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, I, and that's from my perspective, I think this, this was just very a white classist struggle that many would identify with. Yeah. And I think that, like you touched on earlier, I think that's why the interactions with Theo and Boris, especially as kids, are much more fun because, you know, even though they go into, you know, being able to afford drugs and get liquor from their parents and cigarettes from their parents stealing them from wherever or whatever, that isn't, you know, white affluence. It's a couple of poor kids who are, you know, maybe doing things they shouldn't be doing, but having fun. And it's more interesting to watch because that is, I think, relatable to almost everyone. True, true. And and the strength of the movie really was between Finn Wolfhard and, and Oaks Fegley. Like, they were really good actors. Uh, I, for the most part, really respect Finn Wolfhard. And again, I just didn't like the Russian accent. But they, they had a really good dynamic. They made the movie very raw. They made it feel very real. Their connections about the hard things they've been through in life. You know, I had some problems with Theo's mess lottery, I call it, where he just witnessed a whole bunch of improbable things happening at the same time after he left Boris's house 
You, you witnessed Boris getting abused. When he went outside for a stroll, he witnessed his fiance kissing another guy. He just happens to run into all these horrible things with amazing consistency at a level that almost takes you out of the film. But that being said, again, the, the kids did so good that I had a hard time because I really liked the scenes Ansel Elgort was in. As you said in the spoiler section, though, the kids almost stole the show in some way. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And again, speaking to some of the acting, I don't think I, I think I can attribute this to the writing and not to Nicole Kidman. But Ms. Barber was a really confusing character. She seemed open to having Theo in her home and her life, but also seemed guarded until she lost her son, at which point she kind of falls onto Theo to go into the past, which is interesting because she also didn't love Andy as much as her other kids, and it was noted in an early scene. She didn't love him, at least not until he died, and so she seems to sort of be the poster child for you don't know what you've got until it's gone, again, a, a theme that they briefly touched on but didn't really explore i don't know i i don't think it's kidman's fault here and i'm sure that it wasn't even necessarily the screenwriter's fault again coming from a fairly thick novel i believe the novel's almost 800 pages she was probably a very complex character that was really hard to put across on screen but there were just some odd long lingering shots of her just watching theo that didn't feel like they did anything for any characters or for the movie at large Reflecting, I, I certainly agree with that. I wasn't sure if she liked him or loved him at various points based on the camera work, but then the child who Theo was interacting with, is it Adam? Andy. Andy. Andy said, oh, I think they love you and they're going to put you into the family. I, I just wasn't sure. I thought they wanted to get rid of him as soon as they could initially. And going beyond Nicole Kidman's lines and the camera work on her i think her cg i don't know if it was cgi or makeup but her as an old person was a nightmare it looks so very bad that it was unsettling toward the end of the film i think some of that was by design i think part of it was to show how she was like very racked with pain and guilt losing her husband and her son so, I mean, I, I give that a pass. It looked a little bit better. There were some makeuping things that could have gone better. I mean, despite some lingering shots on Nicole Kidman as Miss Barber, I besides that, I think the cinematography was generally done well for what it was in all of the uh, various scenes. The sort of dream death sequence thing where Theo sees his mother it was done well and very clearly showing that he's somewhere between life and death so I have to give a lot of credit to the cinematography uh, scenes there was again a little bit of confusion between the different ways that things were handled but overall it felt really strong additionally I felt like the exploration of grief and self-blame was interesting and strong it was something that Theo held on to for basically his entire life blaming himself for his mother's death which felt very realistic and pretty deeply explored more so than any other theme in the movie. So I do appreciate that. And again, I do want to say that despite that we are railing through all of the things that were really wrong with it or that we found wrong with it, there was a lot really right with it. I have to agree with Elgort that there was a lot of good in this movie too. Certainly so. There was a lot of good. 
It sounds like I've been critical, but it honestly had a lot of good touching moments between the flashbacks and the present. Jeffrey Wright carried a lot of this movie for me. Just two more things I think that that troubled me. Maybe this is why the critic reviews were so low. Logically, I just don't see how after Boris took the painting, he wouldn't open it after all those years. It wasn't clear. And it seemed like the person who was extorting Theo was saying that he was using this as some sort of pole to bring people into the antique community. I don't know. It wasn't well explained. And for me, that was hard to understand. And it, it sort of took me out of the film toward the end. And especially toward the end, uh, the shootout was a little bit weird, as was the resolution of that shootout. And I'm just really annoyed when characters don't explain an easily explainable tension-causing event. So when Hobie was mad at him for the at the end for taking the Goldfinch painting, he could have said, you know, your your partner Blackwell told me to take it. Also, I lost it when I was eight, and my mom exploded. So maybe that caused a little bit of problems there. But instead, he just took the the flack. And this happens in so many movies where characters take the flack instead of explaining the cause. So those those were two critiques. But again, those were small critiques in the grand scheme of the, the dynamics in this film. My only other large lingering critique is just, like we talked about, a lot happened in this movie. And it felt like a lot happened in the last 20 minutes. From the engagement party to the true resolution of the movie was only like 15 or 20 minutes to the point where I had to get up in the theater to run to the bathroom really quick. And that was in the middle of the engagement party right after Bora shows up and said, hey, I know where the painting is. And I sat back down and I feel like within 10 minutes of me sitting back down, the movie was over. Or at least, you know, the, it was resolved, which is kind of insane to me given that, you know, there was a lot of different problems that happened within the movie but obviously the biggest conflict is the goldfinch being lost and having to go get it just felt like it was really overshadowed by everything else that happened in the movie when i think that that was one of the more important parts so just the pacing there was a little bit off but the the point the boris makes at the end is again poignant if a little bit confusing given the pacing where you know they rescued that painting Theo's bird is once again free in the world, along with a lot of other paintings, and if he hadn't taken it, and if Boris hadn't stolen it and used it for drug deals, then maybe they never would have found all of these other stolen paintings. And so again, it is just talking about the twists and turns in, in one's life, which is an interesting concept in theory, although most of the twists and turns here were just shown as negative. So I guess just in closing for me, that examination of a complex issue is present along with many other and that one like most of them tends to be fairly surface level but if you want an exploration of grief and trying to find solace with somebody else who shares your grief I think this actually is a very good film for that but mostly in effect this film is a lot like the antiques that Theo sells in it the backbone is exactly what it purports to be especially the film based on the novel but the intricacies and details have been altered, leaving a piece that isn't quite what it says it is. And to reiterate that, my closing thoughts sort of touch on the same note. I, I really feel like this film could have been more. It was charming at times, as 
Elcourt films seem to be, and some exploration of this complicated life was given. But considering the runtime, it just wasn't as intellectually sophisticated, stimulating, cathartic as it could have been or really wanted to be. All that together, the sum of the parts really was greater than the whole, though. I It seems like I tore into this film. I gave it a 7. I stand by that because the the individual parts really are good, even if the whole film doesn't work. And it could be the source was just so long and dynamic that you can't capture that even in two and a half hours. Moral of the story is I, I still agree. I think the critics are wrong. I think the audiences were more right in this sense that this film was pretty good. All right, Jacob. So if not audiences, but if critics want to get in touch with you <laughs> and, you know, argue with you for hours over the merits of this movie and, you know, you're just not seeing the larger picture of why it's not good. How can those critics get in touch with you or, you know, audience members to let you know why you're right? Uh, if, if critics or audience members want to tell me why I'm right or wrong, maybe there's deviant persons on both ends, you can reach me on Twitter. My handle is at PWGJacob, the letters P-W-G-J-A-C-O-B. Shoot me a DM. Mention me in a tweet if you're extra bold. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll respond to you pretty quickly. I want to hear what you have to say about this film. And if you have any thoughts for me in particular, you can also reach me on Twitter at PWGGrant. That is P-W-G-G-R-A-N-T. If you want to get in touch with the podcast at large, tell us both that we just need to read the book. We we completely missed the mark on this one. You won't get it until you read the book. Feel free to email us at 35millimeterpod at gmail.com. That is 35mmpod at gmail.com. We'll be checking that out. If you guys uh, have any suggestions for movies, industry talk segments, they're coming. I promise. It's taking a little while. We're trying to make them very good for you guys. We're trying to sort of set out a season of them so that you guys can have them all back to back if you'd like them. If you're interested, the podcast is on iTunes recently on Spotify. If there's any other platform that you're interested in us getting it on, please email us. Let us know on Twitter. We would love to get it onto your favorite platform. But For now, I think that's it. Jacob, thank you for another week, and we will hopefully see you all next week. 35mm Perspective is a Players with Game production. All opinions within the podcast are our own. Michael Campos is our composer. All rights reserved.